You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Well, sometimes when you, uh, I, I don't know how many of you have prepared sermons before. I've done a few. And uh, sometimes it seems like the ideas and the, uh, the thoughts and, and all those sorts of things just kind of leap off the page and, uh, and writing the sermon is um, just easy. It's not easy. I don't, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Uh, but, uh, and sometimes, my point is this, that sometimes it's, it just flows so nicely, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's like you're trying to, I don't know, fit a round peg into a square hole, that kind of idea. It just, it just doesn't work, and... If I'm being honest, this, this week didn't work. It just was really, really, really hard. And, um, and I trust this morning, um, I remember I spoke once somewhere, I think I was speaking at Miller, and uh, I, I just thought I bombed. And, and, and so I talked to this fellow pastor, and, uh, you know, I was hoping that he would, you know, pump up my tires and make me feel good about what I said. He didn't. <laughs> and, I, and I just said, I felt like I didn't make any sense at all. And he just looked at me. He didn't say, oh, no, you were awesome. He, all he said was, God can make anything make sense. And uh, that's true. And so he, here's what I trust. I, I trust that God is going to make this make sense. Um, and... I, I don't know if that's a warning that this is going to be really terrible or, or, or not. I just, just, be, just be with me. That's all I'm asking. Um, last week we started uh, and we considered, or we started to consider, the, the book of Esther. Am I not on there, Dan? I am on there. Am I on there? Can you hear me? There you are. Um, we started to talk about the book of Esther, and we didn't really talk about the book of Esther. Um, we talked more um, around the book of Esther. We talked about why Esther is there and why we should study Esther or maybe even some of the other tending to be more obscure books. And we talked about the big... Make me feel good about myself. Pump up my tires. The big... Picture, thank you. And then we talked about the big, say it louder, I'm deaf, question, yes. And then the big idea, thank you very much. That didn't make me feel any better about myself. We talked about the big picture, about how and why the Esther is there and, and what it is a part of. It's a part of the bigger picture, a part the, the bigger picture of God's plan to preserve his people and to bring them all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to Revelation. And, and, and what is all a part of that? That's the bigger picture. It's, Esther stands alone, but at the same time, Esther is part of this 
bigger plan, this bigger picture that God has. And, and God sees the whole tapestry. We only see a view from the bottom. Some of the strands that are woven together, they don't make any sense to us. That's okay. We're humans. We're, we're, we're finite beings, and we can deal with that. And then we talked about the big question. Remember what the big question was? It was the fact, where is God in the book of Esther? And because he's, if you read the story, he's nowhere to be seen, right? He's not mentioned at all in the entire book. So where is he? And we determined that he's everywhere. Just like in any other situation that we encounter, any other story that we read in the Bible, God is all over the place. And he's moving. And we're going to talk more about that today. But then we talked about the idea and, and just what, um, what the idea of, of Esther is all about and, and how it's part of this bigger plan. So this morning we want to get a little bit more into the text and we want to deal with chapter one for sure and we're not going to read it all but we are going to read some of it um, and just by way of introduction I would ask you to just Turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther if you haven't already done so. We're going to read the first nine verses again as we begin. And we're going to talk about what uh, takes place here in the first chapter. And maybe even just a tiny, tiny bit into chapter 2. So chapter 1 of Esther and verse 1 says this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who... uh, Maybe your Bible says Xerxes, that's okay, same person, uh, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Take note of that verse that we just read. Uh, just keep it on the, on the back burner, keep it in in. Uh, keep it in, in mind. It says, in the third year of his reign. Okay? Let's move on. Uh, verse 4. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of, his, of the king's palace. Uh, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do each as uh, to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Why don't we pray as we uh, get going here, Father? Uh, it is our prayer this morning that. that you would indeed make uh, what we read and what we consider this morning, that you would make it make sense, uh, that you would help us to be able to take something away from this service by your spirit, 
that we can apply to our own lives that um, we can use for your glory and for your honor. God, I thank you for each person who is here. Um, and Father, I pray that you would be speaking very clearly to, uh, to each and every one of them this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we have here in the first nine verses, really in the whole first chapter of Esther, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> what we have here is the mother of all parties, really is what it is. I mean, it is, I mean, we read these words, but do we really consider what this means? He had a, a six-month party for all these guys, six months. It was a celebration of him, King Ahasuerus. He said, let's have a party, let's make it last six months, and let's make it all about me. That's essentially what is going on here. I, I mean, I just kind of condense things. That's a Reader's Digest version, I guess. This is a guys-only party. The women weren't invited. They had a separate banquet going on in the palace in a different place with Queen Vashti. Verse 9 tells us that the party was just for his nobles, just for the officials, just for the military leaders. Uh, how many of them were there? We can only guess, and, and really doesn't matter. There was at least, I mean, there was a, 127 provinces that King Aswares uh, um, ruled over, so probably, I mean, hundreds of people? Sure. Uh, I mean, at least a couple hundred men in this ornate and this opulent palace at the capital of Susa. Verse 6 um, describes the scene for us. Again, it just... It just tells us, it talks about white cotton curtains, violent hangings. It talks about marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. Would anybody want to, oh, I don't know. It wouldn't be very comfortable, I don't think. This is, the, this is the palace. This is a description of the palace of the most powerful man on the planet at this particular time. And I think what this party was really all about was him letting everybody know that he knew he was the most powerful person and he wanted them to be in no doubt that he was the, uh, the big... You know, we could have gone big picture, big question, big idea, and big deal because that's what King Aswaris really thought of himself. He thought of himself as, as a really, really big deal. Um, verse 5 again, tells us that this party lasted for 180 days. Um, he puts his whole kingdom, he puts his wealth, he puts his power on display in all this. He throws this banquet at the end of this, I don't know if it was just like a one big, I don't know what, the, what exactly the 180 days was made up of, but at the end of it, there was this seven-day feast. And he threw this party for, for almost everybody, almost everybody in the kingdom. Verse 7 tells us that each official, each guest got his own, um, everyone had this, their own wine goblet, uh, and, and it says in my Bible, in the ESV, it says there was no uh, compulsion, right? I think it's verse 7. Uh, verse 8, 
drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. So basically, I think most of the commentaries would agree that no compulsion meant you could drink as much as you wanted or as little as you wanted. Uh, nobody was going to judge you. Uh, and, and that was essentially what was going on there in the, um, in the palace on those seven days. So I want you to just kind of picture that whole scene, if you haven't done that already. Understand what's going on. We have a bunch of guys together for seven days, no limit. I mean, this is, an, this is the, the mother of all open bars. I mean, this is, this is what is happening here. In this scenario where you have a bunch of these guys and they're together for seven days and they're drinking and eating and laughing and carousing and, and whatever it is that's going on there, something is bound, something is bound, something bad is bound to happen, don't you think? I would sort of think so. Something appropriate is going to happen and when something inappropriate does happen, it may not look inappropriate on the surface when you read into it, when you read it, but I think if you really stop to consider exactly what happens here in chapter 1, you can understand that this is an incredibly inappropriate thing. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, drunk, he commanded, uh, here's the words, um, me human, (laughs) that's an awesome name, biztha, harbona, Bigtha and uh, Abagtha, Zether, and who would name their kid Carcass? Um, I heard a pastor say once that he was probably, his mom just probably said, you get your lazy carcass out of bed, and then it just stuck. Um, these were the seven eunuchs. They served in the province, uh, in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king in a royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this time, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So here's what happens. King Ahasuerus is merry with wine. His judgment is most likely impaired. He makes an inappropriate request of his wife. Essentially, what he wanted his servants to do is to bring his his wife, the woman that he was married to, the queen of the entire kingdom, before him wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the officials and to the nobles. Um, I read this in a book by Chuck Swindoll, and he said this. Inevitably, all this reverie led to excess, debauchery, and drunkenness. By now the king was drunk, and while in this inebriated state, he decided to show off another one of his prizes, the physical beauty of his queen, and he ordered her to be brought into the banquet hall wearing her royal headdress. He wanted his own private beauty pageant for all the drunken guests to enjoy and to envy. Scholars have wrestled with the meaning of the the king's command. 
Some suggested it merely meant that Vashti was to come unveiled, which would have been a scandal and would, would have been scandal enough in a Persian court. Others have suggested that she was to come wearing only her crown, which would have been quite another scandal. But whatever it meant, the queen said no. Esther 1 verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Whatever it was, whatever the reason was that Vashti said no, um, I mean, it's clear it was inappropriate. You got to sort of read between the lines here, but the king was not introduced, was not interested in introducing his his wife, the lovely queen, to the palace to his friends. Hey, hey, this this woman is so wonderful. I want you to meet her because she's so great that's not what was going on here what was going on here was the king wanted to put her on display like an object and I think that we can agree that one of the most damaging things that we can do to a lady I'm speaking to the men here is to treat her like she's an object and Vashti here is being requested to come because the king just wants to show her off like an object, like something that is to be ogled, or he wants to parade his wife in front of his drunken buddies as something to just gratify, to gratify, I don't know, their lustful desires because she's beautiful, and even more so than that because he had a gigantic ego. That's what the king is up to here. But Vashti says no, and we can't be sure of all the reasons, but I believe it was out of self-respect and dignity and the attendants delivered to the queen. And when the attendants delivered the king's command, just Queen Vashti refused to come. Whatever the reason, the result was that the king became furious. He burned with anger. And this was a risky move for Queen Vashti. We all know that to be true. She could have lost her life. Maybe she did lose her life. At the very least, she was deposed and she was sent away. She was banished from the Persian kingdom. In the midst of this six-month-long ego massage for King Ahasuerus, his wife said no to her husband. And... You know, I read so many commentaries this week and books and I listened to a couple of pastors and almost across the board, they, they kind of paralleled this passage in scripture to biblical submission. Um, and, you know, just the whole idea of wives submit to your husbands, Ephesians chapter five. And I know that's some, to some of you, that's maybe a little bit of a swear word or it's hard for you to talk about and, and that's fine. I, I don't want to spend a a ton of time talking about biblical submission because I don't think that that's what this passage is talking about. But Queen Vashti does teach us a lesson here. It's not the lesson of the passage, or it's not the main message of the passage, but it is a lesson. And it's important for us to recognize that. And certainly for us who are males here in this auditorium this morning, in this sanctuary, it is a lesson for us that we ought to treat Ladies with dignity and with respect because that's what they deserve. Submission does not mean that ladies are any less than guys. That does not, um, 
Oh, man, I feel like I'm opening up Pandora's box here. Uh, Hear me on this. Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. These are important caveats because what it means is that submission isn't so much to your husband or to a man or, or whatever it is. That, please don't be offended by what I'm saying. But it is what the Bible says as unto the Lord. What it means is submission to a husband is because it is, uh, sorry, it's a submission has to be because a, a husband is operating in a godly, Christ-like way. That, that's what submission is all about. Ultimate submission is to the Lord and what... In whatever order or structure or leadership or authority you find yourself in. So hear me on this, ladies. I hope in your hearts you will say amen to this. If your husband or someone in the church is acting in an unbiblical, unchristlike way and asking you to do something that is unchristlike and unbiblical, I don't believe you need to do what he says. Or follow where he leads because submission is unto the Lord. In other words, is this consistent with my higher responsibility, my loyalty, my love, my allegiance to my Lord Jesus Christ? If it is unchristlike and unbiblical, there is no obligation there because that's not what biblical submission is all about. And if it grates on you, this whole idea. Maybe there's something that's going on in your life that, <clears throat> that, that you need to, to address. Because <clears throat> the, the scary word submission. You know, I remember I did a wedding for a, a young couple, not from this church. I know that a lot of you have been married uh, <clears throat> by beat. Um, but it was another couple, and we talked about submission. We, we talked a lot about it one night when we met together. And... Uh, the, the the girl in that couple, she was so offended by by what I said. Terribly offended. And she said, I will never do that. Something was going on there. Um, I just say that as an aside. The, the Greek word for submission is hupotasso. Hupo means under, tasso means arranged in an orderly way. It basically means this. In God's economy of things, he arranged in a, the family in an orderly manner so that husbands could provide Christ-like leadership. It doesn't mean that he has to make every decision. It doesn't mean that the husband is any better than the wife because he's not. Okay? So let me just try to ease back to Esther somehow. Um, when it comes to the dynamic of the, in chapter one of Esther, you have a king and you have a queen, you have a, a husband who asks his wife to do something that really is inappropriate. She refuses him. I don't think this has anything to do with biblical submission because Queen Vashti and King Asuerus were not believers. They, they were, they were pagans. And I, and I know that we've spent some time talking about this whole biblical worldview and, and, and uh, uh, a worldview apart from the Bible, Christianity. We can certainly assume that the king and queen were part of the latter. They were part of the, 
the, the pagan side of things, but I do think that there's a lesson here. Maybe it's not the main lesson of the text, but it is nonetheless a, nonetheless a lesson. Queen Vashti's refused the king's order, and she jeopardized all that she had, including her own life, because she refused to be exploited. Maybe we're reading into things a little bit. I, I, I do get that. But she refused to be gawked at and lusted over by a bunch of drunken men. She said no, and she was willing to lose everything to defend her dignity. And the lesson the lesser lesson, I don't know if it's a lesser lesson, when you exploit a woman, when you abuse a woman, when you disgrace a woman, when you use a woman, you are robbing her of her dignity and they deserve to be treated with the utmost respect and love. Women sometimes, I think, get a bad rap in the Bible because... Uh, because, they, I mean, it, it seems like they're, they're seen as second-class citizens, but that's not a reflection of the heart of God, I don't think. I mean, you just need to see the way Jesus treated ladies. Look at the way he treated the woman at the well. He treated her with, with, with respect and love. Look at the, the woman that was caught in adultery. He... She had been married five times. She was on her sixth guy. And how did Jesus respond to her? He gave her, he gave her nothing but love and, and grace and dignity. Sometimes we skip over Galatians 3.18 where it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. So when you look at the role of women throughout the Bible, it's pretty incredible. I mean, you, you just look at the, the ministry of Jesus and how he treated ladies. You look at the entire Bible and you think of people like Sarah and you think of Miriam and you think of Rahab and Deborah and Ruth and Hannah and Esther and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary of Bethany, her sister Martha. You have Lydia and Priscilla and Phoebe. And those are just, that is not an exhaustive list. There's a number of other people, ladies, that we could think of. They are all of examples of women in the Bible who were bold and they were strong and they were wise and they were discerning and they were anointed and they were courageous. They defeated enemies and they defied rulers and they spoke prophecy and they overcame adversaries, uh, adversity and they led nations. They served in churches. I don't know if we'll see Vashti in heaven, but what I do know is she taught us a, a great lesson about how we should treat ladies with dignity, with respect, with love. However, in the time I have left, I have to get back to the bigger picture because that's really what we want to talk about. And, and I know that our time is gone here but I do want to just make a, a couple of different, uh, I just want us to consider a, a couple of different things about chapter one and into chapter two. Because what is going on here is something that is more than just an inappropriate request. I mean, we know that King Ahasuerus makes this 
terribly inappropriate um, request of his wife. And we know that she refuses. And we know what that, we know, we know what happens. He is angry. And we know that because he's angry, he deposes her, he gets rid of her, he banishes her, maybe even kills her. We don't know exactly. But we know what happens. But <clears throat> when we take a step back and we consider what else is going on here, we know that there is more to this story than just Vashti and Ahasuerus. We, we know that to be the case. Because we know that this story isn't about so much Vashti. I mean, she's only in the opening pages. We know that King uh, Ahasuerus is part of the story, but he is, he's a minor character. He's a supporting character. We know that there's more going on here. We know that, uh, I mean, we can consider here and we can go, where is Esther in all this? I mean, we're just reading about a, a drunken frat party here. That's all we're, re- all we're really listening to or, or considering. Uh, I read in uh, Chuck Swindoll's book, he said, if I can cut to the chase, four words will suffice to wrap up chapter one. Exit Vashti, enter Esther. That's essentially what is going on here. It is part of the bigger picture. Uh, Esther knows nothing about the royal edict that, that is going on, that is, that is being sent out to, to gather all the ladies from the 127 provinces that is going on. If you've read the story, you can read uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 when you go home or in your quiet time this week. Esther knows nothing about what is going on, but what we see here, that God is working in the royal officials and King Ahasuerus' anger and Queen Vashti's refusal and all these different things that are happening, all these moving parts are happening. God is moving the parts. He's pulling the puppet strings. It's his sovereignty that is moving this place to where he wants it to be. That's the wonder of God's sovereignty. He is moving and pushing and rearranging events and, and changing minds until he brings out even the, most car- even the most carnal and secular of settings, a decision that will set his perfect plan in motion. He can use anything for his worship, for his glory, and for his honor. And that's what's going on here. Keep this long view in mind. In the midst of what is happening in the king's banquet hall, God's heart remains attached to his people. He is moving in this story to preserve his people. We talked about that last week. And God can move in the hearts of anyone he wishes, even the rulers, even the biggest deal of the day. And in case you've forgotten, God is in no hurry. He moves subtly here, and he, and he moves slightly here, and he pushes this over here, and he tugs over here, and all these different things are happening, all to get to where he wants to go. But uh, a guy by the name of George Herbert once said this. He said, God's mill grinds slow, but sure. This is the big picture that we need to see if we are going to put our anxieties on hold. We need to understand that in the, in the book of Esther, God is at work. And the lesson, I think, for us 
is that if he is able to move in the hearts of kings like little channels of water wherever he wishes, then he is able to reshape and rechannel lives that we think are unreachable and calling our own shots and, and too far to be turned back. You know, I have friends uh, back in Vanderhoof. I have friends here in Porridge and, you know, guys that I uh, have met through basketball and, and that kind of thing. And I look at them and they are the... They are the, the, the pagan of the pagan. I mean, they, they want nothing to do with church. And I often think to myself, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, hopefully I'm a good example and hopefully I can be a good person to these people or whatever, but, but these people will never receive Christ. Shame on me for thinking that. If God can arrange events for an entire nation to get the one person to the place where he needs her to be, God can do anything. And I'm just one person, but God is at work. That's the lesson of of the whole book of Esther. It's certainly the lesson of, of, of chapter one. In the midst of something that we would deem to be incredibly inappropriate and, and something probably we would never want to be involved in, God is at work here. He's setting up the next scene of the story and he's pushing and pulling without Esther even knowing because we, have, we haven't even got to her yet. She hasn't even been mentioned in this story, but God is still working out the details in the background and he's pushing and pulling and, and he's raising and lowering and he's doing all these different things to get Esther to where he needs to be, where she needs to be. Our time is gone, and I would just maybe even consider, uh, I just want you to consider three things here as we close our, our time together. As we close chapter one and we consider chapter two a little bit, uh, I would just say that there are three things that, that um, I want you to, to remember because woven through this wonderful story, we find these lessons. The first has to do with God's plan. The second has to do with God's purpose. And the third has to do with God's people. The first is this. God's plans are never hindered when the events of this world are carnal or secular. It doesn't matter. I mean, God can work in the church. He can work outside the church. He can work wherever he wants to work. And he can push and pull and, and tug and he can use those events that we deem inappropriate and that we would never be a part of. We would look down our nose at, at things that are happening, the thing, like the things that happened in that palace. We, we wouldn't want to be a part of that, but that's not the lesson. The lesson is that God can use those things for his glory. He is not limited to working in the West End Community Church. He is just as much at work in the parliament buildings in Ottawa or in the Oval Office in in Washington, D.C., as he is in my office or Pastor Matt's office. When we think that God can't work in different places, you know what we're doing? We're putting him in a box. We're placing boundaries on what God can do in this world. And when we do that, we stop becoming salt and light to this world. Because God is at work and he is moving no matter what. 
He's touching lives and he's shaping kingdoms and he's never surprised by what humanity may do. God's purposes or God's plans are not hindered when the events of this world are are carnal. The second thing is this. God's purposes are not frustrated by moral or marital failure or any kind of failure. I mean, think about what, what was transpiring in that banquet hall. Think about what would happen when a couple hundred drunk men get together. Think about what led King Ahasuerus to make an incredibly inappropriate request of his wife to do something that would just really massage his ego. The decision to divorce Vashti after she refused because she wouldn't cooperate, in spite of all that, God's purposes were not frustrated and neither will God's plans for your life, despite what happens in your life, despite the sin that maybe will entangle, that will get in the way, that will, that will threaten to derail your relationship and, and make it ineffective. You know what? God's plans for your life are still at work. Because I know that because he is a God who applies grace to the long view. No amount of wrong is going to frustrate God's sovereign purpose. God's purposes, they are not frustrated by failure, by moral failure, by human failure. Here's the last thing. God's people are not excluded from high places because of handicap or hardship. God's people are not excluded. I mean, think, think about how remarkable this story is. Think about, think about this. Esther is a Jew. She is an orphan. She is um, light years removed from Persian nobility. I mean, Persian nobility, Esther, Atlantic Ocean. That's, that's how far away she is from that, Right? She is massively far away, yet none of that kept God from exalting her to the position where he wanted her. And, I mean, if you want a parallel, think about Jesus. Think about Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem. They made this long journey to their hometown. They found no place to stay in the middle of the night. They had a baby, and that baby the angels declared to be Emmanuel, God with us. The Messiah didn't come from wealth and nobility, at least from the earth's perspective, but their son became the true king of kings and lord of lords. And it's the same thing with Esther. God propelled Esther to the place where he needed her to be to complete the part, her part of God's big picture, God's big idea that God is going to preserve his people. And he used Esther to, to accomplish his plan in those days, for such a time as this, Esther, uh, the book of Esther says. And so my, my question to you is this morning as we close, where are you on your own journey? Are you discounting the significance of your days? Are you, citing, or are you sighing rather than uh, seeing or singing? Are you wondering what good can come from all that you have, that all the things that you live with The kids that you can't handle, the 
the marriage that just doesn't seem like it's in harmony right now. The pressures that seem to have no end. Can I just, can I just encourage you this morning? God is at work. And his plans are not frustrated by your failure, by, by, by your shortcomings. God's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so heavy that he cannot hear. Whether, he, um, whether you see him or not, he is at work in your life, in the lives of the people that you love. God, God not only moves in unusual and mysterious ways, but he moves in mundane ways. He moves when you're having breakfast. He moves when you're driving to work. He moves when you're going to school. He is moving in and around all the things that go on, in the big things of life and in the mundane things of life. Esther has no idea what's going on. She is just going about her business, being this beautiful young Jewish girl in Persia. All and and everything that is happening around her is unbeknownst to her, driving her to this point where she is going to save her people. She is going to accomplish God's purposes. She is going to be in the place where God wants her to be. And so I say to all of us, as an encouragement that whether we are in the incredible or when, whether we are in the vastly boring, whether we are in the mundane or the mysterious, God is at work. And he will accomplish. I mean, he calls for obedience. Yes, he does. But he, he has plans for you. Plans to prosper. Plans to give you hope in a future. All those things. God is at work. And I think that is where we got to leave it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's good to be here this morning. And I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the lessons that we can learn. I pray that you would just guide us and help us to understand um, that no matter what's going on in our lives, that you you're not taken by surprise. In fact, you know what's going on and you are at work within it. And so, Father, I pray that, I pray that we would be obedient, but I pray that we would be also encouraged that when we experience shortcomings or when we experience failure or when we experience the things that, that are unexpected to us, you know what's going on. And may we live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.